Good evening. I apologize for sitting down tonight. Just um, my back has continued to trouble me, and since Karen looks so cool always when she preaches sitting down, I thought I would just follow in her footsteps. Um, my sermon tonight is called Waiting for a Miracle. When I was in college, we had wilderness weekends. It was an option to fill our PE credit requirements. The course involved a couple of weekends camping where we roughed it. Now, we weren't at the KOA campground with a shower nearby. We carried all our supplies in on our backs. We did rock climbing, rappelling, and whitewater canoeing. So on the second weekend of our wilderness weekends, we were on a whitewater canoe adventure. The leader of the course encouraged us to take good care of the canoes as they were on loan from the local Boy Scout troop. I could almost hear the ominous music rumbling in the background when he said, damage to these canoes could mean the end of wilderness weekends for the college. Dun, dun, dun. And I thought, that kind of took me aback, but then I thought, surely I wouldn't be the one to damage the canoes and end wilderness weekends for the entire college. Well, long story short, I was randomly assigned to Lisa as my canoe partner. I will say we were both quite inexperienced and uh, extremely mediocre in our canoe skills. We did the best we could, although I thought I might be the stronger of the two and perhaps therefore should be in the back of the canoe. She did not want to be in the front because the water coming toward her so quickly was scary for her. Wasn't a good sign, you can tell. Um, I do not think we were really set up for success. At any rate, as we bumped along the river, we hit many a rock and had many a rough time in our teamwork and communication. At one point, we got stuck on still another rock, and Lisa said, Deb, the boat is broken. I didn't believe her. I said, just help me shimmy off the rock. We'll get the canoe off, we'll keep going. And then she said again, Deb, the boat is broken. I looked around and saw that the gunwale of the boat on one side was under the water, and the current was just wrapping us around the rock make it into a large horseshoe. We were in trouble. We needed a miracle to get unstuck and get out of this mess. Lisa, being very spiritual, more spiritual than I, said we should pray immediately. And so she began to pray. And I remember thinking prayer was a good idea, but I really wish she felt comfortable praying with her eyes open and on the fly in our impromptu setting rather than closing them as if we were safely settled in an easy chair back at home. Anyways, the Lord, despite our unworthiness, uh, answered our prayers, and uh, our leaders came and uh, rescued us. We weren't, it wasn't rapids like, uh, that were in danger of taking our life, but they were in danger of ruining the boat and making us very wet. Um, the leaders rescued us, and we waded out of the river using ropes to brace ourselves against the current, and they pulled our horseshoe-shaped canoe out of the water, and then I was afraid, here was it coming. You have ruined wilderness weekends for Gordon College forever, but all they did was stomp on it and the boat just straightened out. Despite my fears, it did not mean the end of wilderness weekends for Gordon College, although it did mean the end of wilderness weekends for me. <clears throat> Life is full of challenges, whether we're on a wilderness weekend in a Boy Scout canoe or not. My favorite singer-songwriter is Bruce Coburn. I borrowed one of his best lyrics to entitle this sermon, Waiting for a Miracle. The line in the song goes, why does history take such a long, long time when you're waiting for a miracle? 
If you're like me, you don't like to wait, and history has taken a long time. There are many miracles you could use fulfilled. There's many miracles that I'm sure you're waiting for. I'd like an end to the war in Ukraine. Some people would like a spirit of cooperation in our national politics, perhaps a medical intervention, physical healing, restoration of broken relationships, renewal of hope. In this weary world, we do have suffering and pain. Since the fall, our sin separates us from God and each other. When we live in this context without God's loving, redemptive presence, we are in need. And even if we know God's loving, redemptive presence, sometimes we forget to lean on him and try to do it on our own. We find ourselves waiting for a miracle again. Tonight, join me in considering the wise men, seekers who followed God's guidance and worshiped him. Like us, they were waiting for a miracle. What did the gift of a baby mean to them? What did it mean for us modern, what does it mean for us modern day seekers and believers? Our gospel reading tonight is found in Matthew. This gospel has a Jewish sensibility and was written to target Jewish listeners primarily. That makes the inclusion of the visit of the Magi to the Christ child even more significant. I wonder why did Matthew spend time focusing on these non-Jewish characters? We've just exited the season of Advent whose liturgical color of purple signifies the act of waiting. About 12 days ago, we celebrated Christmas. And tonight, we celebrate Epiphany, when the Magi visit baby Jesus. I was raised with red and green colors of Christmas, and the Magi were depicted in every nativity, so they were part of the Christmas story, but we never honored their arrival as a separate event from Christmas. Church historians tell us that in the early church, Christians celebrated Jesus' coming on January 6th, commemorating the Nativity and the arrival of the Magi, as well as other events from his early life, all in one feast called Epiphany. The term Epiphany means to show or to make known or even to reveal. In Western churches during Epiphany, we remember the coming of the wise men bringing gifts to the Christ child. Their arrival, their reverence, their gifts reveal Jesus to the world as Lord and King. Over the years, the feasts of Christmas and Epiphany were separated out from each other into separate events in the church calendar, which is why we at Savior celebrate Epiphany tonight, although officially the date is always January 6th. Epiphany comes 12 days after Christmas, so some of you who have always wondered, where does that song, the 12 days of Christmas, come from? Well, there you go. It's the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany. In many countries, the tradition of Santa Claus has not permeated the season as it has here. Um, in Latin America, the Philippines, Portugal, Spain, the three kings, the three wise men bring presents to the children on Epiphany. As we know here at Savior, with some significant and welcome Mexican influence, we celebrate with the rosca, the three kings bread. Whoever finds the Christ child baked into the bread will provide a snack for us another time, according to the tradition. In our scripture passage tonight, the visitors who came to see Jesus are called magi. In the singular, magus, plural, magi. A magus was a member of a priestly caste in ancient Persia. As such, they were trained astrologers, very well-educated men for their time. They saw a significant and unexpected change in the night sky, a moving star. Some have since speculated that they saw a comet or perhaps a conjunction of two planets passing near each other. 
I'm sure God used whatever means he needed to beckon them to Bethlehem. I'll explain on this thought in a little bit. The number of wise men has traditionally been considered as three, since there are three gifts listed in Matthew, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Scholars state these gifts were of Arabic origin, which again refers back to the other scripture we had tonight in, in the Psalms, speaking of uh, kings of Arabia. Gold and frankincense are, continued to be, are considered to be gifts fit for a king. As we know from our hymn that we've already sung a bit from tonight, We Three Kings, one um, verse is dedicated to myrrh, where the uh, songwriter talked about how it's used for entombment and associated with death. But in the Old Testament, scholars note that the spice myrrh has a long tradition of being used to mark joyful occasions also. The giving of these gifts to King Jesus reminds us of the visit the Queen of Sheba made to Solomon, the son of King David, to confirm, to affirm his kingship. In our passage tonight, Matthew was documenting another ruler in the line of King David. Traditionally, we've called the Magi kings, but it's not clear that they were rulers per se. The practice of calling these worshipers kings originates, many believe, in scriptures such as the Isaiah passage we read tonight, which presages the gifts of gold and frankincense and states that kings will revere Jesus. It is interesting to note that at some point, several centuries after Jesus' birth, Christian tradition even assign names and specific identities to the three wise men. Melchior, a Persian scholar, Caspar, a South Asian ruler, and Balthazar, a Babylonian scholar. Some Chinese Christian traditions claim that Balthazar hailed from China. I love the idea of placing the origin of these traveling scholars all across the globe. It reiterates the trans-ethnic, the supranational nature of Jesus' arrival. The miracle of his birth was not just for the Jews, but for all of us. Whether we call them kings or not, whether we assign them countries of origin or not, these seeking wise men are the first Gentiles introduced into the story of Jesus. Epiphany shows us that God sent Jesus. It reiterates the message of Christmas. Jesus is here not just for his chosen people, the Jews, but for all of us. Through the miracle of God sending his son, we are all chosen ones. The presence of these three magi, these three learned travelers, emphasizes the fact for us that Jesus' life from its beginning was for all of us, even us Gentiles. One theologian I read jokingly called the adoration of the magi the first ecumenical church service. <laughs> um, these seekers had all the human knowledge available in the world, but still found themselves seeking. I think they were waiting for a miracle. I wonder what emptiness, heartache, or loss led them to risk everything to follow a star. Father Bill, several years ago, coined a term to describe God's outreach to these astrologers via the stars, accommodating grace. God used a language that these astrologers, these seekers, could comprehend, showed them his power and guidance through the manipulation of his very own creation, the skies above. In preparing for this Epiphany celebration tonight, I was reminded of another example of what I would call accommodating grace. In the 1970s, I lived with my family in Maine. My parents practiced their gift of hospitality regularly, 
often having traveling choir members or church speakers stay at our home. In one case, they hosted a missionary couple, Don and Carol Richardson, who served in New Guinea, working with people whose tribal culture involved a veneration of both deception and cannibalism. That's a rough combination there. Um, looking back, I believe that Don Richardson was speaking uh, was on a speaking tour both to raise support for his mission and also to promote his new book, Peace Child. Carol, his wife, was an RN, and he was a trained linguist. They went to New Guinea with the plan of sharing the love of Jesus there. Their goal was to learn the Sawi language of this unreached people group and provide them with the good news of the gospel. When they learned enough Sawi language to share the story of Jesus, Don told them the story of Jesus' sacrificial death. He thought this was a great story to share because of the universal message. He thought it would touch their hearts. However, he realized as he told them about the Last Supper and Judas' betrayal of Jesus, they admired Judas, not Jesus. They looked to Judas as the ultimate hero because he pretended to be Jesus' friend and then double-crossed him in the end for the money. That fit with their tradition. Discouraged by this and, and a lot of violence amongst the people they're working with, the Richards continued their work, but there were several communities who lived together to support them. These uh, villages that were living together found peaceful coexistence difficult. They had a long tradition of violence against each other. Don and Carol did come to a point where they believed their presence there was bringing these three villages, historical enemies, um, unnaturally together. And ultimately, they thought perhaps we're causing more harm than good. So they spoke to their New Guinea hosts and said, we think we should move away to work with just one tribe alone where conflict is less likely. We're not doing you any good here. However, these villages, these three villages, did not want them to leave. In a spontaneous response, they decided that they would practice the ultimate gesture to resolve conflict. In their tradition, if you give your child to your enemy and your enemy accepts the child, then you have agreed to peace. The giving of a peace child is an unbreakable bond. So the villages exchanged infants and achieved peace. The parents who gave their children were heartbroken but committed to this act to gain peace for their entire community. In observing these sacrificial acts of peace, Don had an epiphany. He realized that the practice of giving a peace child was the key to explaining the gospel to his hosts. Jesus is the ultimate peace child given to us by God the Father. Don called it a redemptive analogy in other words, embedded in their tradition, an idea of redemption that connects to the gospel. I would perhaps call this redemptive analogy an accommodating grace. God's plan to give his son to reconcile us to him fit with their tradition. The gospel was meant for them, just as the gospel is meant for the wise men and for you and for me. By the way, if you're interested in learning more about this ministry, you can go to a website called Peace Child Legacy. Although Don recently passed away in 2018, the website is lovely. There are a number of videos at the website, including one documenting the return of Don and his sons to visit the communities they first lived with. 
um, my heart was, uh, was deeply touched. The Sawi were still following the faith and talking the film about how their lives have been transformed by Jesus, the ultimate peace child. So let's return to Matthew. The backdrop of our celebration of Epiphany is the lie and deceit of Herod. He says in the scripture he wants the seekers to return to him so he can go and worship too. In reality, of course, he wishes to eradicate Jesus. It's understandable that an insecure leader would like to, you know, eliminate the competition. Historical records tell us that Herod killed uh, one of his wives and three of his sons. Um, Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, because it was thought that as a Jew, Herod would not touch a pig, but his family members were another story. Certainly, an undocumented, star-announced king was not safe, especially if even Herod's sons were not. As a side note, thinking of the Sawi of New Guinea, we know that when unconverted, they would have looked at Herod as the hero. If, they had been, if he had been successfully able to betray the wise men and execute Jesus. Again, using means that the wise men would understand in their culture, we are told that God spoke to them in a dream and told them to go home by a different route, not to return to Herod. I like how James Taylor put it in his song about the Magi. They went home by another way, home by another way. Maybe you and me can be wise guys too and go home by another way. How is God calling to you tonight? What miracle are you waiting for that seems to be taking a long, long time? What accommodating grace has he shown to you? What new path are you being called to walk with Jesus this year? God's accommodating grace provided a star for the wise men to follow in their sojourn for peace. God's accommodating grace provided a peace child for the Sawi people of New Guinea to build a bridge to salvation and a transformation of their hearts. God's accommodating grace provided the strange warming of a heart that called John Wesley to Christ. In the story of the gospel and conversations with friends converted atheist C.S. Lewis. The intricacy of creation can invite the scientist to faith. The beauty of a poem can call the heart of a reader to bow before the Lord. I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories. I know I've shared it at least once before here, but I think it bears repeating tonight. My sweet niece, Sydney Marie, is now a lovely woman of 27. She's always been very quick-witted and bright. When she was a little girl, about seven years old or so, I was babysitting for her during Christmas. We were sitting in my parents' living room and there was a Christmas pillow on the couch. The pillow was a needlepoint and it had an angel blowing a horn um, to announce Jesus' uh, arrival. The, the drape from the horn was a banner saying, peace on earth. Sydney, in her curious and thoughtful seven-year-old way said, auntie, if God said peace on earth, why is there no peace on earth? Just a little minor philosophical question for a fun afternoon with the family, right? I scrambled and probably by God's grace said, well, Sydney, God showed us how to have peace on earth by following his way. But when we don't follow his way, then there is no peace on earth. Immediately she responded, oh, you mean like when I feel inside and I push my little brother to make him fall on purpose? I'm like, yes, Sydney, that's why we don't have peace on earth. There we have it. As we celebrate Epiphany and some of us feel inside, we remember that in Jesus' first coming, the miracle we've been waiting for has arrived. Like the Sawi, 
we have been given a peace child. God has offered us reconciliation. Like the seeking magi, we've been accepted and God is with us. Like the magi, we are called to fall down and worship him. We've been given a new path to follow. Let us tonight follow Jesus and go home by another way. Amen.